Father, it is good for us to sit before your word, before you, and take in the stories, the things that took place centuries ago that might lead to bringing to us the gospel, salvation. We thank you for Paul and his faithfulness. We thank you for Luke being the author of this book and his accuracy in transmitting everything that took place. We would ask, Lord, that you would move us in our innermost beings to be closer to you, to pay attention to your spirit, to know what your will is in almost every situation. Help us to be so close to you that there's no question in our minds. And we'd ask that as we get into this healing of Aeneas and also Dorcas, that you would teach us, Lord. Teach us more. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I told you the story last week of Barbara Kaminsky. If you haven't heard that, I would invite you to go to the website and listen to last week's message and how it was just miraculous, how she got healed. She was sent home to die, and of course, she didn't die, and she's alive to this day. Now, we have the healing of Aeneas in Acts chapter 9, verse 32, and we're going to pick up the scripture there. Reverts back to Peter here. It says, As Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take your mat. Immediately Aeneas got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, I think I told you last week, and I'll reiterate it later, the reason the Lord heals somebody is he wants there to be a witness of his power, his grace, and his mercy. So people will then listen to whatever message is presented. Now, we know the enemy has the ability to do this. Satan and all of his cohorts, they have the ability to do what we would consider miracles. We want to make sure that if we ever see a miracle we adjudicate that miracle we look at it in light of scripture with what the message that comes afterwards what what is that message we want to make sure it comports with scripture that it's not outside of scripture that it's not in addition to scripture and so when this particular healing took place Aeneas he he obviously got saved and then all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord it's like entire cities got saved or entire villages got saved as a result of Aeneas being healed now this is somebody who's a paraplegic and of course in that book that I recommended to you the miracles uh, there are paraplegics that get healed there are people that are raised from the dead and you've got to go through that book and it will increase your faith if you do so then there is Tabitha or Dorcas it says in Joppa now if you're familiar with Israel at all Joppa is on the coast, and it is what we know as today Tel Aviv. If you go to Tel Aviv, it used to be Joppa, and that's where Peter was. He was in Joppa. It's a nice seacoast town, has a beautiful shoreline. The water is crystal clear, kind of like the rest of the Mediterranean, especially around Greece, that area. But it's just a beautiful place to be, and that's where Peter was. So there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa. So when the disciples heard that Peter 
was in Lydda, they sent two men to him to urge him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying, or yeah, stood around him crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed, turning towards the dead woman. He said, Tabitha, get up. She opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with the tanner named Simon. And so here we have another healing, basically a raising from the dead taking taking place. And when we have these two healings and the ones that I told you about last week, it's like, do people really still get healed well i think it's a mute question you read the book and you start checking it out i would say yes do blind people still see do lame still walk do limbs still grow there was one story in there somebody had lost fingers and they started praying for them that the fingers would grow and they actually grew back as they were praying now make no mistake sometimes the prayer is just get up and tabitha gets up in the book People spent four hours praying for somebody to be healed. And it took four hours of prayer. And I, I heard that and I go, oh, you've got to pray for four hours for somebody to be healed? And there's all different kinds of ways that people get healed. But that's just some of the testimonies who, are, who have been uh, given for us to have more faith. And so why don't we see more healings in the West as opposed to the rest of the world? I mean, when was the last time you heard somebody in a church in the United States getting healed? The last one I remember was there was a pastor. He had scar tissue on his vocal cords, and he was reading a psalm. And in the midst of reading the psalm, and his voice was real raspy and harsh, the Lord healed his vocal cords right in the middle of him reading the psalm. And you can hear it on tape or CD or you know, MP3, whatever it is, you, you can listen to his voice change right in the middle. And of course, he breaks into tears and he says, you know, I think the Lord just healed me. And he did. And that's the last one that I really remember hearing about. But you don't hear about them everywhere. So I ask this question, why don't more healings or we see more healings in the West as opposed to the rest of the world? Well, I think there's some good explanations for that. The uh, population of the United States is only 4% of the world population. So most of the population is not in the United States. We have 325 million people here, and there are 8 billion people in the world. It just crossed that threshold of 8 billion people. And there are 2.5 billion Christians in the world, and the USA only has 9% of that total number, which is about 277 million Christians. Now, do all Christians believe in the gift of healing? No, they don't. There are churches that teach that the gifts, especially the sign gifts, are no longer for today. The ones that are listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 
And it, it's right after the love. Love is patient. Love is kind. And it says, where there is knowledge, knowledge will cease. Where there are tongues, tongues will be stilled. And they take that to mean that the gifts were only for the first century. Now, I reject that teaching because they say in there, when the perfect has come, there's no need for these other gifts. And that's just my uh, paraphrasing of what it actually says in the text there. And I don't believe that the perfect that has come, those who believe that there are no gifts like that for today, they say the perfect that is supposed to come is the actual written word, the canon of Scripture. I don't believe that. I think it refers to Jesus Christ when he comes back. There's not going to be a need for healing anymore. I mean, after all, we're going to be resurrected. We're going to be in our spiritual bodies. We're going to be here for a thousand years on earth, as the scripture says. In the book of Revelation, towards the end of the book, it says Christ is going to come down and rule for a thousand years, and we are going to be resurrected to rule and reign with him. And I think we will all have the gift of healing. And if... if it's according to God's will. There's no one who remains through the tribulation that repopulates the earth that is going to be without healing. We're going to heal them. We're going to pray for them. And it's going to be as the Lord intended it to be. Even though there is a fall, I believe we're going to be able to heal. We will all have gifts of knowledge. We will all be able to do the Lord's will according to the, the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Jesus will be in Jerusalem, and it's going to be a fantastic environment to be here. And so will there be a need for the gift of healing? Well, I suppose so from time to time, but all the gifts that were necessary to point to Jesus Christ, he's here. He's already here. And remember, most of the people, by just musing on this a little bit all the people that will be born remember a child or somebody will be thought a child if they die when they're a hundred years old it means people are going to live like they used to in the beginning of the old testament they live for hundreds of years like methuselah over 900 years could you imagine being here that long and seeing the changes that come about? And before Abraham, that was commonplace, 600 years, 700 years, 800 years, 900 years. Of course, the Lord designed us to live forever. And because of the fall, that was no longer possible. Why else don't we see more miracles in the West? I think lack of faith. We don't want to believe that, oh, you know, it's... Yeah, God heals, I get the concept, but you know, it's, it, you just don't see it very much. Well, read the book, find out, do some research. It, you know, I think millions of people get healed. We just don't see it. We just don't hear about it. There's not good documentation. Are there charlatans out there who do it for profit? Absolutely. False teachers that do it to try to get uh, gain and that's, that's going to be just part of this world. But Mark chapter 6, verse 5, we know that Jesus, he could not do many miracles in his hometown except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. They lacked faith. And I think we oftentimes lack faith. So the population, that's one uh, criteria. There's also the lack of faith. People sometimes feel that they don't deserve to be healed. I'm such a sinner, why would the Lord heal me? It's just going to be my lot in life to endure whatever it is that I'm going through. They, they don't feel worthy, they don't feel important enough, and so they just neglect that or they reject this idea of healing. 
Another one is the bad theology, as I just mentioned, the cessationists, those who don't believe that the gifts are for today. Now, in this church, we believe that gifts are for today. They're charismatic, but not charismaniacs. You know, it's not hanging from the ceilings or running up and down the aisles. It, we believe that, as the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15, our God is a God of order. There's not disorder that is to take place inside the church, and it's bad theology. And I think it's bad theology to say that the gifts no longer exist today. And then there's the issue of sin, which can be a hindrance to healing. We know that in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 29, those who would receive the communion uh, of the Lord, some people have become sick and ill, and some have even died because of the way that they were conducting their lives, and it was sin, and it was a hindrance to them. There's also people who are bitter and angry on the inside towards others, and the Lord wants that dealt with first before there is healing. Then there's the idea people accommodate sickness. It's a simple way of life. They just say, you know, this, this is the way it is. You grow old, you die, and you get sick in the process. It's just what happens, and they don't even think about being prayed for or ask the Lord to heal them. Then there is... A a belief that we suffer is part of the Christian life. Like it's my cross to bear. I have to carry this around with me because the Lord wants to keep me humble. Kind of like uh, Paul's thorn in the flesh. He sought the Lord three times to remove it. And the Lord did not remove it. He said, my grace is sufficient. And some people walk around saying, you know, it's just my part in life. That's what I'm supposed to do. Or uh, another reason is acting presumptuously demanding that God heals, expecting that God has to do this for the individual. And all these, these are just a few reasons why healing doesn't take place. And of course, ultimately, it is just this idea that God can heal in spite of all of these hindrances if he wants to. He can just hop right in there. And in the book, a lot of people who got healed, they weren't expecting it. Some were expecting it because they believed God told them, but others weren't expecting it. And they were just surprised that God would heal them. And they didn't feel any more special than anyone else because God chose to heal them rather than someone else. And so why doesn't God always heal? Well, I think the number one reason, it's not in the timing or will of God. As I said, the thorn in the flesh that Paul had, sometimes it's God's will that we are infirmed because in our weakness he is made strong that's what Paul said about his thorn and then there's this idea that we live in a fallen world there's sickness, death and evil remember because of the fall that's why we die and eventually everyone being under the curse has to get sick and has to die because the Lord said you're all under a curse you're going to die told Adam In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And of course, he didn't physically die at that point. He spiritually died. His communion with God was interrupted. But we live in a fallen world, and God intends to change all of that. And that's the grace and the mercy of God. And also, some people think that prayer, faith, and fasting are a solid combination that will force the hand of God to heal. You can't pray enough. You can't give enough money. You can't have enough faith. You can't fast enough and force God's hand to heal. He does it simply because of his grace. Now, one thing that's hard to grab hold of, would you guys agree we're all sinners? Can I hear an amen? We're all sinners, right? 
And we can't change that. Even after you accept Christ. Are you and me? Are we still sinners? Can I hear a... We are. We're still sinners. And God looks for the opportunity to be graceful towards us. To extend mercy. He wants to extend mercy to us even though we're still sinners. He goes, yeah, I know. You you have my son and his blood covers you and I still want to bless you. I still want to heal some. I still want to perform miracles for some. And that's the God we serve. And we don't operate like that. We don't know really down deep what the agape love is because we are flesh. We, we are blood here and we get caught up in what's good for me and what should be bad for somebody else. And we have these problems and these interpersonal relationships with everybody. And God goes, I know I'm going to fix all that, but you're mine and I still want to extend grace to you. And God does that not only for those who follow him, but also for those who don't even know him and even those who are hostile to him. That's who our God is. He extends grace and love to everyone. Now, even in the case of Dorcas, the poor knew her. The widows knew her. Word spread about Dorcas. She was raised from the dead. That word went throughout Joppa. News of her resurrection spread so that God would be glorified. And that's how the people got saved. And again, that's why these miracles take place, so that people can give glory to God. And Peter's healing of Dorcas, you know, I was thinking this was done in order to have a ritual or some, some people would consider it a ritual that if you do it just like Peter did, if you get down on your knees and you turn towards the person and you pray for them and say, get up, they're supposed to get up. It's kind of like a formula. And I think that's why Peter kicked everybody out of the room to get out. And he was the only one in there. So we don't know exactly what took place. He probably just came out and said, yeah, I got on my knees. I prayed. I looked at her and said, get up. That's it. So people have a tendency to want to follow some type of order. And they think that the prayer and the fasting and the amount of prayer, the hours that you spend in it, that's going to force the hand of God and somebody has to be healed. It, it doesn't work like that. And so that's why I think Peter kicked everybody out said, I don't want you guys in here. I'm just going to pray for this. And that's what he did. And of course, she rose from the dead. Now in heaven, this idea of being healed, it's going to be a mute topic. Because in Revelation 21, 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. So we're not going to have the crickety joints. You're not going to wake up and always grunt as you get up or grunt as you go down. You know, one of the things is when you go down, you have to negotiate getting up as you go older. You have to grab onto something. It's not just whoop, back up like when you were a kid. And we're going to have all of that pushed to the side. We're going to leap like deer, so to speak. And it's going to be a fantastic existence up there. So eventually all the suffering and death will be removed and it will not be remembered in heaven. We will not look back at the time that we are existing right now and say, remember when it's not going to happen. We're going to forget about everything up here. Now, that's been postulated by some. Well, how are you going to forget? Are you just not going to recall it? Or is God going to use bleep? bit on your brain and take away everything we don't know exactly how it's going to happen but i think my opinion of this is 
we're just going to be so involved in what's in heaven, we're not going to even think about what took place back here on earth. And of course, Isaiah 65, you've heard me read this before. Verse 17, Behold, I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. We're going to forget about everything here. All the pain, all the sorrow, all the loved ones that we lost that are not in heaven, they will be forgotten. And they will be in a place that is separated from God. Now we get into chapter 10 here. And here we have Cornelius, but there's something interesting that's taking place in here. And it's visions and dreams and trances. Wow, that's something that took place in the first century. It says in verse 1, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all of his family were devout. And God-fearing, he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So a, a centurion is a captain over 100 people. So he was kind of higher up and he had some influence over the area that he was the centurion. And he was a God-fearer, not an idolater, which means he was a proselyte, a proselyte to Judaism. But the Jews would shun any Gentile. He, he didn't go through the circumcision, any of that, but he prayed often, probably three times a day. He would pray just like the Jews. If you go to Israel today, morning, noon, and evening, they pray three times. And that's what he was doing. Now, it says all of his family was devout he was a giver he was generous and he prayed often and here in verse 3 it tells us what took place one day at about 3 in the afternoon he had a vision he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said Cornelius Cornelius stared at him in fear what is it Lord he asked the angel answered your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter he is staying with Simon the Tanner whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. Now, this idea of visions. What are visions? There's television that we look at, right? That's not this type of vision. This vision is something where God either speaks while you are conscious or you are having a dream of some kind. And in the dream, maybe you've had some of these dreams. I've, I've had dreams like this in the past where you wake up and go, whoa, that was not, that was something else. It wasn't just a dream. That something else, what does this mean? And you try to figure out what's going on. <clears throat> there are other times where people will have visions. They know exactly what they are supposed to do. Like for instance, if you go back to Saul... And Ananias, Ananias had a vision. God spoke directly to him, said, go get Saul, pray for him. I'm going to show him what has to happen. It was very clear. But sometimes you have these visions and they don't happen very often at all. But when you have these visions, it's like the Lord is directing. And if it's kind of unclear, you have to figure out what he's saying. He wants you to seek after him to get the meaning of the vision that is there. All through the Old Testament, there were visions given, like for Daniel. Daniel got some strange visions. 
And he didn't know what they meant and it caused him a lot of anxiety and he almost became sick over these visions that he was having. And he really never got the interpretation of what they meant. But we, looking back at the book of Daniel, we know what they meant. We know it was the rise of these worldly kingdoms, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar or the Medes and Persians or Alexander or the Roman Empire. We have hindsight. He didn't. Those things were in his future. That's why there's a debate whether or not Daniel actually wrote the book or is written after these historical events. And, of course, we have plenty of evidence that shows us it was written back in the time of Daniel. It wasn't something that was made up after this, uh, these historical events took place. And so Cornelius had this vision, go get this guy. Well, what did that mean? So I get the guy, what's up? And all we know is he sent the two servants along with the soldier and they came back, they brought Peter back with them and he goes, what's up? And Peter, I can imagine what he was thinking in his head. I don't know. What's up? What's up with you? I don't know. What's up with you? And they're, they're kind of going back and forth. And he goes, I think God wants you to tell me something. What do you want to tell me? And of course, the house was full. Now, let's go through that, <clears throat> this idea of dreams and visions. And, and by the way, I'm going to digress just a little bit. These dreams and visions, they're example of God speaking to individuals that are existent today. I gave you this book uh, maybe a year or two ago, Tom Doyle, Dreams and Visions. And over in the Middle East, he would get these stories of how God would speak to some of the Muslims over there and they end up getting saved. I'm going to try to recount one story from memory. I think it was Tom Doyle and he was going through a market, an open air marketplace over there. And that's the way it is in most of the world. Uh, if we have it here, it's kind of like a swap meet or something. Or There are some open-air uh, stores that you can go to, and they sell fruit and jams and honey and things like that. But this is commonplace. Even over in Cambodia, you go there, and there's meat setting out, and there's flies all over it, and you can buy your meat, and you take it. And no wonder we're getting sick. But you, you take it, and you know you fix it up that night. Well... Tom Doyle was talking about how he was in this one market. And if my memory serves me correctly, as he's walking through it, he sees a guy a couple of uh, rows over and he's looking right at him. And Tom Doyle looks back at him and he's going, okay. And so he's, maybe I ought to head this way. And he starts heading this way. And so the other guy starts heading that way with him. And he keeps looking at him. He doesn't take his sight off of Tom Doyle as he's walking away. He's going, man, something's going to go on here. I don't know what it is, but he kept on walking. And as he sped up, this other guy sped up. And he goes, oh, great. You know, what's going to go on? And he's in a Muslim country and he's a Christian. So he's thinking, okay, I might end up in jail or something worse. And the guy comes up to him and he goes, you. And Tom Doyle goes, what? And he goes, I saw your face in a dream and I'm supposed to talk to you. And, and that led to that guy and his family being saved. So, and this is current. This isn't something that was hundreds of years ago. And he ended up getting saved. There's another guy, an Islamic terrorist leader who converts to Christianity after seeing a vision of Jesus Christ. And this is on YouTube. It's three minutes and 29 seconds. And he was a terrorist. And God gave him a vision and he became a believer. Tom Doyle's book is all about... Muslims getting visions from God today 
and they are becoming believers in Jesus Christ and they're being witnesses to their family. Now, it's not like here. Over there, if you convert, you can be killed. But over here, we don't have that threat. At least now we don't have that threat. But they do have that threat over there. So God speaks through dreams and visions even today, just like he heals and just like there are miracles. So there were two servants and a devout soldier. This was not a military matter, so he sent the two servants. And he, he told them to respect Peter as they went to him. Now, verse 9 says, About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. It would be like a patio, but it's up on the roof. And he became hungry and wanting something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Now, what is a trance? We have these dreams. We have these visions. Now, a vision, it's kind of like you check out a little bit, but you kind of see with your mind's eye. You may even see clearly what's going on. But a trance, you are semi-conscious. Now, there is a, a thing called lucid dreaming. I've experienced it once. Lucid dreaming is where you're asleep, but you start to dream, and then you realize you're asleep and you're dreaming. And you can kind of manipulate the dream. There's lots of literature about this, and it's kind of weird when it happens. I remember when it happened to me, I just go, I'm asleep, but I'm dreaming, and all these things, you know, were going on. It's kind of cool, but like, ooh, this is kind of weird. Well, this is what happened to Peter. He was praying, and he goes into this trance. Now, how do we know about these trances? Hypnotism. People can get hypnotized, and they go into what is known as a trance, a hypnotic state. They are half awake, and they are half asleep. Do I think that's a good place to be? Or lucid dreaming. You're open to suggestion there. And we know people who have been open to suggestion under the influence of hypnosis. And Buzz, you know, can tell you about it again. I mentioned that a while ago. And you just want to make sure you're not constantly seeking after that. As believers, we don't want to go, I want to be in a trance and experience God. Or I want to have these visions. If God wants you to have a vision, he'll give you the vision. But if you're seeking after the experience, it has a tendency to take away from you seeking after Jesus Christ. You want to seek Christ. You want to know his word. You don't have to go after the aggrandizement of the feeling that you might get. Although feeling's great. You know, when we worship or something, you get that feeling, the tingling on the inside, and you're worshiping God. It's all good, and that's recommended if if you can get there, you know, if you're not distracted. But you don't want to be in the forefront, the, the heart of that, seeking after those things just to experience them. If God wants you to experience them, they'll come along. And that's okay when they happen. And of course, we know that this is something that was prophesied in the Old Testament. But verse 11 says, he saw in this trance, he saw open or heaven open, and something like a large sheet being let down by the earth in its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times. And immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Now, what was on the sheet? We know that there were reptiles. Jews cannot eat lizards and snakes. 
it's out. It's not kosher. You can't have pickled lizard or anything like that at all. Well, the other animals, four-footed animals, they were probably not kosher animals that he saw on the sheet. Now, what's a non-kosher animal? A llama. A llama is a non-kosher kosher animal. A camel is a non-kosher animal. You're not supposed to eat that stuff. That was forbidden for them uh, to have as a meal. And also, well, what about the birds? They were not allowed to eat like hawks and raptors and things like that. And since turkeys were not over in the Middle East, when they came over here, it was a debate that was going on for, it still goes on for hundreds of years. Can they have turkey? Most of the Jews say, well, yeah, you can have turkey. It's not an unclean bird. And so there's this debate. Well, what is acceptable what can you eat and what can you not eat there's currently kosher foods there's a list you can eat cloven hooved and cud chewing mammals they're kosher examples of those are sheep deer and goat the only birds that can be considered kosher are chicken duck goose and turkey you cannot eat an ostrich you cannot have any emu uh, fish, and you cannot also have a bird of prey. Uh, for fish, the seafood that is kosher, it has to have fins and scales. There's no lobster for you, no shrimp. You cannot have uh, scallops, none of that stuff that was forbidden for the people. You can't have catfish. It doesn't have scales. So all of that stuff, crawdads, you, you cannot eat crawdads. You go down to Louisiana, oh, the crawdads are great. Get them by the bag half a pound or pound at a time suck those things out oh it's just great but jews were not allowed to eat that and so he says lord i have never eaten anything that's unpure or impure i won't do it also if there's processed food for the jew even today if there's a processing place there a jew has to a, a rabbi has to be there to see that it's being processed correctly and the meat should be slaughtered under the guidelines of what is known as shakita Shakita is the animal has to be slaughtered in such a way that where they feel a minimal amount of pain. And even separate utensils have to be used. You can't mix in like the vegetables and use that utensil for any meat or any stew or anything like that. You have to keep those things separate. Uh, if you go to Israel today, you cannot get a cheeseburger because you cannot mix cheese, which is a milk product, with the meat because there's a chance because the Old Testament says you cannot boil meat in the milk of its mother and so they go to the nth degree on that you cannot have cheese with meat if you do that oh it, it's kind of like sacrilegious and you become unclean and you have to offer a sacrifice and that, that's not acceptable what verse 17 says while peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision the men sent by cornelius found out where simon's house was and stopped at the gate they called out asking if simon w- who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Now this would be like a vision as well. He's, he's hearing the voice of the Lord. Peter went down and said to them, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. Now, normally, the Jews would not meet together, especially in a house with a Gentile. 
And of course, these servants were probably Gentiles, maybe even the uh, soldier that was there. And the whole reason for that sheet coming down in all these animals, do you think it was meant for him to start eating llamas and lizards and things like that? That's not what was being communicated there. Although he was free to eat after that because God said, do not call unclean what I have made clean. That's true. So what was the message? I I gave this to the youth this week. When you say the little colloquialism, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. It is not talking about bushes and it's not talking about birds and it's not talking about hands. But that's used to communicate a truth. So the sheet comes down and what if it represents the Gentiles never Lord have I sat down with a Gentile and had a meal I'm not going to do it I'm not supposed to go in their house he goes don't call unclean what I have made clean and it would have been an unclean act for him to go sit with Cornelius and the Lord says Peter get up and go down and see Cornelius and go to his house it says the next day Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along the following day he arrived at Caesarea Cornelius was expecting him and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up, he said, I am only a man myself. Now there's one codex, another writing of this particular portion of scripture. And it's from the Syriac uh, region. And it, it reads like this. But as Peter drew near to Caesarea, one of the servants ran before and told that he was to come. Then Cornelius leaped up and met him, and falling at his feet, he worshipped him. So that would make sense if Peter was standing there, this guy, the centurion falls down and starts worshipping him. He goes, man, get up. I am just a servant like you. So it's a remarkable addition of what it could be taking place. It makes a little more sense. And so going on in verse 27, talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against the law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So it wasn't about the animals on the sheet. It wasn't about the sheet. It wasn't about take up and eat. It's this idea of being with somebody who's a Gentile. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Like, why am I here? Well, you're supposed to tell us something. What are you going to tell us? And it goes on, Cornelius answered, four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour and three in the afternoon, suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gift to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately and it was good for you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. What are you going to tell us? We want to hear what you're going to say. And Peter says, why am I here? Well, you tell us something. Then Peter began to speak. Now I realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. So the vision for Peter became clear. God has called everyone clean. 
you know, I was reading a little bit about India and what's going on in India and how they have the caste system there. And people, if they're born into a particular caste, they can never rise above that in India. But if they come to the United States or another free country, they can rise above this caste system. Lots of discrimination going on there. But we know from Scripture everywhere, we are all the same. How many races are there? There's one. There's the human race. We are all relatives of Noah and all relatives of Adam and Eve. We come from the the same stock, so to speak. We are all brothers. We are the human race. Colossians chapter 3 verse 11 says, Here there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ in all and in all. In Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I've told you before, the leaves that come that are on either side of the river that flows from Jerusalem is for the healing of the nations. The Lord likes the nations. He loves the different races that are out there. He likes the distinction. And what's the push in the world today? No, just make everybody one. And then we all become transhumanists and we hook up to the internet and the 5G. And I mean, that's where the world is talking. And God says, no, I like these nations. I like the differences that are there. And we're supposed to celebrate that. Now, verse 36 says, you know, the message God sent to the people of Israel telling the good news of the peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, you know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. This is the gospel. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God has already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him and that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. A few more verses here. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the, even on the Gentiles, for they heard him speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? And they received, or they have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. This is God saying, I want everybody to have the gospel, not just the Jews. I want it to go to the Gentiles, and I want it to go to all the nations, as we just covered in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And of course, to accomplish this, for this word going out, God had visions and dreams and, tr and trances in order to do that. And this is prophesied in the Old Testament, the book of Joel. But it is in Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 18. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, 
both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Isn't God good? Because back then he said, this is going to happen. This is going to take place. He told it was going to happen. He let us know. And he used these individuals, the 12 and all the disciples, to carry this word out. We are here as a result of their obedience. Now we have to transfer that to ourselves. What are we going to do? Do you believe in healing? Because you see it here. I've given you the other book and said, listen to this one or read this one. It's still for today. Can we still have dreams and visions and trances? Yes. I don't think that should be the focus of our discipleship. But God wants us to go elsewhere and he can guide us. You know it would be great if we go to Cambodia? And, of course, all the people, if they got healed, I don't need these glasses anymore. And they take them off. You know, that would be great. Or, my tooth is fine. It's completely whole. What do you mean? It was hurting. You told me it was hurting. What if that happened? Or somebody else who was infirm that showed up and they needed to be healed and we prayed for them and they got healed. What would that do for the villages that we go to? Oh, be tremendous. Does God want to reach those people with the gospel? Yes, he does. May God cause us all, with you praying and uh, the group going, that we are fruitful, that people get saved, that they enter into the kingdom because of our efforts. And no matter how much is expended on the trip, even if it's one or it's 50 people that get saved, Typically on these trips, we have a few hundred people. They, they accept Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what we're supposed to be doing. That is discipleship. And one other thing I'm going to add to this. The youth over on the other side, I gave them a challenge when I met with them this last week. I said, what is the purpose of meeting together? And they came up with different answers. And I said, it's so that you can gain knowledge and become a disciple. That's what you're supposed to do. What is the Great Commission? And I know some of them knew it, but they kind of hemmed and hawed. And I said, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Your job is to go into the world and make disciples. I said, I've been doing this a while. It's your turn now. You need to figure out how you guys are going to make up flyers and go to the middle schools and go to the high school over here and pass those flyers out and invite them over to the youth group. Now, if you want to give them the gospel right there, I said, that's totally fine you can do that but now it's your job to go out and make disciples we're supposed to replicate ourselves and that's all of our job we don't just simply stop once we become christians settle down and experience churchianity we're supposed to get up and present the gospel to everyone out there may god give us the boldness to be like peter to shun what we have known and practiced as a tradition if god wants us to reach somebody may he give us those dreams and visions and trances if he wants us to do something specific and may people get healed and may people get saved let's pray father we we are so thankful for peter and his obedience here shunning what he knew to be true and your word said but you changed you told him something new was on the horizon and because of that Cornelius and his entire household was saved and because of his obedience we get saved Lord may we be submissive to your will may we be obedient and be guided by your spirit and help us to die every day offering our bodies as living sacrifices holy and acceptable unto you and this we know is our reasonable service in jesus name everyone said please stand up as we sing our closing song